Masechet Megillah, Daf Zayin, fantastic jam full Daf of Agadot and stories and really get to the essence of the institution of the whole holiday of Purim and of the inclusion or not of, of Megillat Esther into the Tanakh. Okay, we're going to start off following up on the discussion we had before. When you have two months of Adad, as we're going to have this year, then when do you do all the mitzvot of Purim? We saw a three-way machloket, but the uh, two of the opinions, the most, the two most extreme ones were Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, who said that we do everything in the second uh, Adar. He learned that from the fact that this is Bechol Shana Veshana. It should always be the same, and therefore you should always choose the month that is closest to Nisan. We want to have Bisomech Geula Li Geula. That was his interpretation. It also had to be Eli Ayazid Abedibiyose, and he says you always go with the first Adar, because also it says Shana Veshana, and just like every year Adar is next to Shvat, so too, we're going to choose the first one that is next to Shvat. All right. Uh, so that's where we ended. And now Rabbi El-Azad adds, Amar, Tamad Rabban Shibon Ben Gamliel Mehacha. Rabban Shibon Ben Gamliel, who says you, use, you, you do everything in the second Adad, has a different proof. Because Dikhtiv Lekayim Etiget Tapurim Azot Hashenit, it says that they, to, they wanted to fulfill the uh, letter about Purim, the second. Now in Peshat, is talking about a second letter. They sent one letter, then they sent another letter. But he's making a midrash to say shenit means the second month. And if there are two months, make sure to do Purim on the second month. That's his proof. Now our question is, you have two different proofs. Why do you need both of them? Oh, I need both. I need this pasuk that says the second and the one that says every year. If I only had Shana Vishana, I would have had the questions that we mentioned before. How do you know you mean every year that, that in that every year it's closest to Nisan? Maybe you mean every year the month that's closest to Shvat. So really that's quite kind of ambiguous. That's why we need the Pasukas. If I only had the pasuk that says shenit, I might have thought shenit means you read it again, twice. Maybe you have to celebrate Purim on Adar Aleph and again on Adar Bet. Truth is, we don't say Tachanun on both months. Maybe you'd say I have to read Megillah on both months. Lecha And so therefore it says Bechol Shana Veshana. You do it the same as every year, just like every year you only read once, celebrate Purim once. So too, even on a leap year, we celebrate Purim only one time. Okay, challenge. But be Eliezer, but be Yoseh. Hi, Hasheni to my Avid Le. But be Eliezer. He's he's the one that said we should only read on the first month. So what is he going to do with this word that says Hasheni the second and it implies the second month? Me by Eliezer the Rav Yishmuel Bari Huda. The Mar Rav Shmuel Bari Huda. But Tchila Kavuha Beshushan Ul Basof Bechol Haolam Kulo. He'll follow this interpretation that says at first Purim was established only in Shushan, and they said everybody in Shushan has to celebrate. But then they said, you know what? We're going to extend it and send another letter to tell everybody in the whole world that they also should celebrate. So that's why it says Shenit means a secondary enactment, not only for Shushan, but also for celebration throughout the world, which is probably closer to Peshat there. All right. And now that we saw that statement of Rav Shemuel Bar Yehuda, we see yet another one. Amar Rav Shemuel Bar Yehuda, Shalcha lahem estel hachachamim kiboni ledorot. And this also relates to what he said before, that it's about the very establishment of a holiday. 
And really, this is a great question. How do you establish a new holiday? You know, you have the, 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 the observances in the Torah, and it's, it is very difficult to add a new holiday onto the calendar. We see the kind of controversies going on today uh, regarding Yom Asmoth, for example. So um, at that time, Esther sent to the sages and said, please, I want establish me for generations that this will be a required holiday. And uh, in, implied in that also is that the Migilat Esther will be included in the, in the Tanakh, right? So establish me for future generations. And the sages at first rejected her plea and said, no, this is a bad idea because it will cause jealousy and anger among the nations. Why would it call anger? Because we're going to be celebrating like, hey, what are you celebrating? Oh, we're celebrating when the Jews, Jews went and destroyed all the bad people around, the, you know, destroyed the, the non-Jews around in their cities. They're like, oh, that's terrible. That's a terrible holiday. Well, don't celebrate that. And it might cause the anger, the wrath of those around us even though we were actually defending ourselves and so on. But, right, you know how people can misconstrue. And so, you know what? We're still a minority people. We're still living under the Persians and or later under other foreign rulers. And we don't want to make a big deal out of our victory. So they said, no. And they're still sent back to them. Well, you think they don't know the story already? The story is already there, written in the chronicles of the kings of Madai and Paras. The story is already set down in the history books. If they want to find out about it, they can they already know about it. If they want to, you know, come and uh, take their re- revenge, so then they can do that anyway. We're not telling them anything that they don't already know. So we may as well celebrate our victory. Okay. Uh, in fact, the story of Purim is not found in any current uh, known uh, uh, histor- historians, including Herodotus, who was the, uh, the great uh, Greek historian of the Persian Empire. But uh, maybe one day we'll find more records. Um, anyway, we're going to see a teaching in the name of these the following set of rabbis. In parentheses, by the way, it says whenever you find this set of rabbis, instead of Rabbi Yochanan, you should take him away and substitute him with Rabbi Yonatan. He's actually the one that was a colleague of them. Okay, now we got the rabbi straight. What did they say? Esther said to the Chachamim, write me down for generations. So similar conversation that we just had before. Before it was... Uh, like establish my holiday. This is this is now Kitvuni. Write down my book and set it down in your in the canon. That says I have written about you three times. And about you, this midrash is taking to mean regarding uh, the telling of Amalek. Where do we find a story about Amalek? A mention of Amalek once in Shemot where actually talks about the, the big battle that Moshe ben Esel had with Amalek, all right, when they leave Mitzrayim. Again, in Devarim, towards the end, where Parashat Zachor, remember what Amalek did, right, and uh, erased their name. And then again, in Shemuel, when Shaul is commanded to go and wipe out Amalek. So the rabbi sent back, we already have it three times, and the Pasuk in Mishle says Shalishim, and therefore we learn Ve'elod Ebe'aim. So therefore, sorry, very nice book that you wrote, Megillat Esther, but we're not allowed to include it because we can only talk about Amalek three times and not four times. But then you know, they wanted to accommodate, so they searched more. 
and they found the pasuk regarding the fighting of Amalek in Shemot. And look carefully, it says, Ketov Zot Zikaron Pasefer. It's an interesting um, in, in internal um, command that this very thing that we're talking about, this very fight should be uh, mentioned in the book. And therefore it is, it is included in Tanakh. Now these words we can parse to refer to each time Amalek is mentioned in Tanakh. Ketov Zot, so Ketov and Zot, this refers to what's in Shemot and in what's, what's in Devarim. Zikaron, a mention, a memory of it. That's in Shemuel. And you still have another word left over. Basefed, in a scroll. Oh, see, look at that. When we look that carefully at the Pasuk, we see there's an extra word there left over, kind of hanging out, waiting for the Purim story to happen one day and giving an opening for Megillat Esther to be written and included. So <clears throat> there you go. They said yes, and that's why we have Megillat Esther is included in our Tanakh. Um, okay, but we're going to see it is a controversy among Tanaim and among Amoraim, and so and among from, from the time of Esther, between Esther and the colleagues back then. So this is a controversial book. We know, by the way, that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found copies, at least a partial copy, of every book of Tanakh, except for Megillat Esther, which suggests that the Dead Sea sect did not agree to include this book, um, which actually makes sense because in their calendar, Purim always falls out, always falls out on Shabbat, and they don't make any changes uh, and push things uh, forward and back like the rabbis do. So they, in fact, did not have Megillat Esther, but, and the rabbis disagree with it. In the end, we, of course, do have it, but it's interesting to see the machloket behind it. <clears throat> so um, we say this is actually only one of two opinions, and here is a braita that records both opinions. Is Megillat Esther in Tanakh or not in Tanakh? Says as follows, Ketov Zot, Mashekatuv Kan. Ketov Zot is what is written here, meaning in Shemot. The word Zikaron, Mashekatuv Mishet Torah, that's what's written in Devarim. Uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Talmud, the, the, uh, what we call Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy, is referred to there as Mishneh Torah, the second Torah, the repetition of the Torah, because Devarim uh, summarizes and repeats so many things that are in the first four books. Basefer, and the word Basefer is what's written in Sefer Shemuel, and so according to that, since it already took Ketov Zot to refer only to Shemot, so there's no word left over. So that's it, according to the Biyoshua, sorry, Esther, right? It's a very nice, entertaining book. And however, we have no room for it. We can only write three stories about uh, Amalek, and we have no room for a fourth uh, not from the Pasuk in Mishle, and not from this Pasuk. We have, uh, everything's taken, all, all slots are taken. So that's very important to be. Yeshua says, Megillat Esther is out. <clears throat> However, Bimadi agrees with what we just said in the Braita before. Ketov Zot, all that is referring to the Torah. And it happens to be twice in the Torah. Fine, that's all included in Ketov Zot. So Zikaron is Nevi'im, and that leaves Basefet open to something else. And is the, we don't, otherwise, we don't have anything else. So there you go. Megillat Esther is in, according to the Biel Azad Hamodai. Okay, now that we know it's a Machlok Tanaim, we can look yet at yet other opinions that argue about this. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Shemuel. Now Shemuel is a first generation Amora, after the opinions up here. 
And he says, Esther, Esther, he means Megillat Esther, does not make the hands unclean. What is this talking about? Uh, well, there's a general halacha we learn elsewhere that scripture, holy, holy, holy scrolls, if you touch them, your hands become tameh. Now, hands becoming tameh is only a low-level tumah. It's only the rabbanan. Either your whole body is tameh or not. So this is a rabbinic decree. And uh, all you have to do if your hands are tameh is do natilat yadayim. And that's why nowadays we do natilat yadayim before eating bread. And that's uh, similar to what the, it's a, a throwback to what kohanim used to do before they ate tirumah. They had to be totally tahor. And so just in case their hands became tameh, they used to do natilat yadayim. So that means something that makes your hands tameh. And there's a whole category of things that make your hands tameh. And usually it's a safeguard so that people won't even come close to something that's actually tameh. So that leads to the question, why should holy books make your hands tameh? It seems counterintuitive. It might have would have been made more sense to say um, uh, Homer, Greek mythology, right? Uh, uh, pagan books, they should, they're tameh. They should make your hands tameh. Right, but Tanakh, that, that should be the opposite. They should, they should be Tahor. But the, uh, that was the challenge that, that people gave to the sages. But the sages answered and said, no, no, it's the opposite. When we say, Megillah, make a uh, 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 holy scripture, make your hands Tameh, the rabbis did that so that we would treat, treat it with more respect. And that's the halacha now. You don't just go and take a Sefer Torah and handle it with bare hands. It's not respectful, right? Instead, we use the cloth, we use a kerchief uh, to handle it through that, and that shows respect. So in a um, kind of ironic way, we say it will make your hands tameh, not because the Sefer Torah can cause tumah, Sefer Torah cannot cause tumah, but rather so that you'll be careful when you're touching it, right? Just like when you're touching a very important, special thing in a museum, right? And uh, uh, you don't want to, you want to handle it with care. So that's what it's talking about. So therefore, any book that is in Tanakh that is considered holy is metameh yadayim, when Shemuel comes here and says, Mikilat Esther is not metameyadaim, he's saying it's just a regular book. It's the same as uh, just a dictionary, right? And it does not have holiness, is not important. So there you go, Shemuel. <clears throat> Seems like he agrees with Rabbi Yoshua. Now we ask, Shemuel, are you trying to tell me that Esther was not written um, with this level of prophecy called divine inspiration. Um, this is a, not quite prophecy. It's a lower level, right? Um, un, under, under the influence of, of, uh, of the divine spirit, uh, but still is some holiness. So if you're saying that it does not make your hands unclean and therefore is not part of Tanakh, so you're saying that it's not a holy book. It was not written in, uh, in Beruah HaKodesh. Is that true? As Shemuel in another place explicitly says that Esther was written with the, that with the divine spirit. So therefore, which one is it? And the answer is a really interesting answer. Megillat Esther was said to read, but was not said to be written. Now, we're not used to this idea because if something is, if you're writing it down, if you're reading something, you have to write it down. So what does this mean? Rashi says it was it was said to be read, meaning read. Rashi says by heart. Um, it's like a agada. You can say the story by heart, but you're not going to read it. Down, you're not going to write it down. Now it's a little hard to say that because you're saying likrot. 
um, if it was, it was really if it was really memorized, you say Lishanot or something. So others, uh, Ritva and Rambam, uh, say differently that yes, you can write it down, and when you write it down, obviously you'll you'll read it when you're telling the story. But it's not um, it's not made to be. Well, maybe we would say published or officially written down to be included in Tanakh. So it's going to be written as a separate book. And the separate book is Beduach HaKodesh. So yes, it's important, holy book. And so there's another category. There's the books of Torah. Those are the highest level, right, from Moshe. The books of Nevi'im, those are prophetic books and secondary of importance. Kitubim are Beduach HaKodesh, and they are included. And now there's yet another category, not in Tanakh, but yes, Beruch HaKodesh, and that is sufficient, and Shemuel would still uh, read it and say Beruch HaKodesh and still celebrate the holiday. Okay, so this is really a fascinating uh, answer, a fascinating category. Obviously, we do include it in our Tanakh, so we don't follow that opinion. Okay, now we're challenged to this. Now we're going to quote a fascinating baraita that where the rabbis discuss other books besides Megillat Esther, um, are they, do they make the hands unclean or not? And so the says, Kohelet does not make the hands unclean. In other words, Kohelet should not be part of Tanakh. It's not a holy book. Why would anybody think that? Well, I don't know. If you look at Kohelet, it looks like wisdom, very nice wisdom. Although Kohelet has some lines in there, like, you know, that seem to be uh, a little out of place. You can go and read it. And so the rabbis discussed, does this belong? Does this not belong? Maybe it's just one person's uh, uh, meditations. Um, so he said it should not be in. And, and there's machloket regarding Shira Shirim. Shirim also, you look at it and you see it looks like a love poetry. I don't know. Does it belong in Tanakh? Some of it is a little uh, R-rated. And uh, if you include it, that means you're taking it as an allegory to the relationship between Hashem and Israel. If you don't include it uh, and you say it's not metameh daim, so then you're treating it as just poetry. Um, so it should not be included. So these are really fundamental controversies about the very essence, nature, and understanding of these books. So really fascinating to see this. the opposite. Yes, it, it causes hands, uh, causes the hands to be tameh, meaning it is holy. And kohelet, that's the question we're not sure about. Ben Shimon says that kohelet uh, Bet Shammai was lenient about, in other words, he didn't, he said, it's okay, uh, it's not, it's, it's not metemeh yadayim, so it's not holy, mechumre betilel, and betilel considered that it is holy, and therefore it is metemeh yadayim, but then he adds, aval rut veshira shirim, or sounds like this according to everybody, aval rut veshira shirim veester, no, he would have to say this because Shia Shirim has already discussed before. Rut and here it says that Rut Shia Shirim and Esther. Here's why we brought this whole thing because it ends with Esther It does make your hands tameh. So therefore, therefore, you see, we have a definitive baraita that says Esther is holy, and that is a challenge to Shemuel. Shemuel, how could you say that it's not metameyadaim over here? It says it is metameyadaim. And the answer is simple. Shemuel agreed with Rabbi Yoshua above. Rabbi Yoshua is the one that said, right, all the spots are taken up. Sorry, no room for Megillat Esther. Megillat Esther is out. And Shemuel agrees with that, even though Shemuel would say, okay, you could write a separate book, but not in Tanakh. And whereas uh, this Baraita says Megillat um, Esther is in. Okay. And another Baraita, Tanya. Rabbi Shimon ben Menasya Omer. 
Kohelet we already mentioned Kohelet, but we're going to discuss it further. And he says that Kohelet is not Metemeyadaim, it's not holy, because it's Shalomo's own wisdom. And while Shalomo was a great wise man, and we can learn a lot from him and his experience, nevertheless, it was not with it was not divinely inspired. And so, you know, go ahead, read it, just as you would read any um, you know, any good book of wisdom. But it's not uh, it's not part of Tanakh. That's what he said. And so they told him, wait a second, you think uh, Shlomo Melech only wrote that book? And Mishle, it says that he wrote 3,000 parables. In other words, um, he, wrote, he wrote many, many thousands of works. And already he'd sorted them out. All those other parables, we don't have record of anymore because they weren't kept. And so what did he keep? He kept the ones that are in Mishle and in Kohelet. Why did he keep these and not those? Because these are holy. And therefore, if these are chosen to be recorded, it's because they are holy. And that disagrees with them. And he adds yet another proof, a Pasuk Mishle that says, don't add to his words. Why not? Why, why don't add to his words? Because the words he chose are the ones that are special, because they're holy, they're divinely inspired. And don't take the other works. He did have other works that were not divinely inspired, but he didn't record them because they weren't as important. So from these two pesukim, you see that Kohelet is is Yadaim. It is holy, it is special and included in Tanakh. Okay, there you go. So now regarding this Badaita, we just wonder, how come you had to bring two proofs at the end? My Ve'omer, why is he at a second Pasuk? Uh, so it's a, the reason is as follows. If you only had the first, it says, oh, we had 3,000 parables. You might still say, okay, so he had 3,000. He couldn't publish everything. You, know, you, have to, you have to limit. His publisher gave him a, a limit on how many pages. So some of them he decided to write, some of them not. It doesn't necessarily mean that the ones he included uh, in Kohelet are, are divinely inspired. So if you might, if you would say that, so that that's where we bring the second pasuk, Tashema, al-Tosf, al-Devarav. Don't add anything to his words. You can't add anything. Even if you say, oh, I like that one too. Let me put it in. No, there's a fundamental difference. And that is, adds to the proof that Kohelet is divinely inspired and therefore is in Tanakh. Tanya. Now this Baraita is going to quote a series of proofs that Esther, Megillat Esther was in fact divinely inspired. Um, if you find them not so convincing, don't worry. The Gemara is going to reject them. Uh, so Esther says that Haman said to himself. Now, how would anybody know what Haman was thinking in his mind? Unless they had Ruach HaKodesh. Otherwise, no one else could read Haman's mind. And so that's proof number one, that it's, uh, it was written by Ruach HaKodesh. That's what Be'eliezer. Rabbi Akiva says, Omer, Esther Beruch HaKodesh, Shemar Vati, Esther Noset Chen, Bene Kol Ro'eha. Remember that when they did the beauty pageant, and it says Esther uh, was, uh, found, was obtained favor in the sight of all that who looked upon her. Everyone who saw Esther said, right, she is, she is very beautiful. Well, how do you know what everybody was thinking? Maybe there was one guy in the back that said, eh, I think she's a five, right? How do you know what everyone was thinking? Only if you have divine inspiration, then you can know that everybody thought she was beautiful. Third proof. Rabbi 
It has to be Bedoch HaKodesh because when Bigtan and Teresh, remember when they tried to, uh, the plot to assassinate Hashverosh, says the thing became known to Mordechai. Well, how would Mordechai know it? Maybe it must be he has, he has divine prophecy. And actually, this would only prove that Mordechai has divine, pro- has divine prophecy, not that the whole book was, but maybe the proof is that from the fact that we know that Mordechai had, uh, was able to know, because otherwise he didn't write it down anywhere. How would the author know that? Well, maybe the author was Mordechai, but okay. So this is, uh, that's, anyway, that's the third proof. At the end, after the Jewish people uh, uh, win a victorious in war, they do not take anything in their hands from the plunder. They want to show, we just did this to defend ourselves. And we, uh, we, did, we didn't do this for, so we could get rich. And so they didn't touch anything. Now, how would you know that everyone actually kept this law, right? Maybe there's one guy in some province in Persia who went and took one necklace. So how can you say definitively that no one took from the spoils? Therefore, only someone with divine prophecy would know that. Okay, so that's four different proofs in the Braita. And then after that, Amash Shemuel, the Amora, adds, Ani havai havai atam. If I was there in that discussion, I would add another uh, proof that's better than all of theirs that Megillat Esther is prophetic. Pasuk says that they uh, confirmed and accepted. Why the double language? That means that they accepted up in heaven, the heavenly court agreed that this should be this should be made as a holiday and they agreed with the earthly court below now how can anybody know what the heavenly court uh, said only if someone who has uh, divine prophecy could know that yes in heaven they agreed to it of course this is a midrash pasuk simply means that you know a doubling that they they surely accepted but it gets to the fundamental idea of who's authorized to add a holiday to the calendar uh, if not, that they um, that they had a divine agreement to it. And so Shemuel says, my proof is the best. <clears throat> Good. Shemuel's first generation. Uh, in the fourth generation, Amarava says, all the four Tanaim uh, can be refuted, except for Shemuel. He, in fact, is the best one. When it says, Haman thought to himself, Oh, who does the king love better than me? Right when Hashverosh asks, "What should the king do for someone who he loves?" and uh, uh, Haman thought to himself, "Oh, it must be talking about me." You don't need uh, to be a prophet to figure out what, what Haman was thinking at that time, right? Anyone looking at on this at the situation will be in, will be able to interpret it just as well, because <clears throat> after all, um, he was second in command. The king, right, put him in charge. And when Haman answers and he elaborates and says, "Just put him on a horse and do all these things and give him clothing," obviously he thought that. This was going to happen to himself. If he thought it was talking about someone else, he wouldn't have said such great uh, things that the king should do. So any, 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 uh, any good reader, any good interpreter could know that you don't have to be a prophet. That's a good point. When it says that everyone thought Esther was beautiful. Well, oh, how do you know what everybody thought? Well, you don't have to be a prophet for that. Um, because there's another Midrash that says uh, Esther appeared to everybody 
in a look of their nation. Right? Everybody, every race, ethnicity, they find the most beautiful, the people from their own uh, ethnicity. And uh, Esther's appearance was such that when people from one country looked at her, they said, ah, she looks like our people. And everyone else thought she looks like our people. And uh, therefore, um, because she looked beautiful, according to this, to everybody, uh, you don't need to be a prophet to know what everybody was thinking. Okay. Another midrash says Big Ten and Teresh were uh, were were from uh, uh, Tarsus, and they spoke a different language. So when they were plotting, they were speaking in a foreign language of Tarsus, and so that's why they spoke spoke openly. They figured nobody understood the language, but Mordechai. Uh, another tradition says that he was on the Sanazin and he knew all the language, 70 languages. He overheard it, understood what they were saying without them realizing. And therefore, he didn't have to be a prophet to know what they were thinking. Um, and uh, therefore, even if he is the author of the Migilat Tested, it does not need to be said in prophecy because he could have known that just by knowing languages. Uh, de, okay, and uh, Rabbi Yosef ben Maskit said, how do you know that no one took any spoils from anywhere in the land? Well, maybe it wasn't as after you from prophecy. Maybe they sent messengers and the messengers went and told everyone and found out. And in fact, no, no that never happened. So all the Tanaim can be rejected. But the opinion of Shemuel, no one can have a disproof because how would you know that? And the heavenly court agreed that Purim should be a good holiday. This is the folk saying that people say one sharp pepper is better than a handful, a basket full of pumpkins. Those pumpkins are really big, but their taste is weak. Uh, one one uh, hot pepper has packs in more taste than a whole basket of big pumpkins. And the analogy is the Tanaim are the greatest, the great sages. But, and Shemuel is small, he's just one little Amora, but his, his uh, statement packs in more sense in that one little statement than all of the other opinions. Okay, so that's a lot of fun. Rav Yosef adds, I have another reason to prove that the Megillah uh, was written in prophecy, because it says that the days of Purim will never cease from among the Jewish people. Now, if you're writing this hundreds of years ago, how, how would you anyone know that we'd still be celebrating Purim today? They can't know that unless they are prophecy. Similarly, the memory, uh, the memory of this day will not perish from their seed. And how would they know that we're going to still be talking about this right now uh, unless they were prophets? And there you go. That's the conclusion of that uh, discussion. <clears throat> and we uh, conclude that, yes, it is written in, with uh, divine inspiration, if not full-fledged prophecy, but that is sufficient for it to be included in one of the books, as one of the books of Tanakh. Okay. Mishnah mentioned that we have to give gifts to the poor. Pasuk actually already says it. It says this, that you have to send portions to one another. And so we learn from here, since it says Mishloach Manot is plural, and it says Ish is singular. So one to another, one person should send someone else two manot, so you have to send two portions of food to one friend at least. And regarding gifts to the poor, here it says plural and plural. 
plural gifts to plural poor people. Therefore, you have to give two gifts to two different poor people. That's the famous source of this halacha. And now we're going to have a few stories, uh, many of them <clears throat> a lot of fun. Uh, stories about rabbis who sent each other uh, gifts. We start. Rabbi Yehuda Nesiyah. He was the patriarch. He's the grandson of the famous Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, And he was also very wealthy. He sent to Rabbi Oshaya one leg of a third-born calf. We saw that a third-born calf is considered the most delicious. After the cow gives birth to the first two, the cow is young, and those calves aren't quite as developed and fatty. The third one is the best, so he gets one leg of a third-born calf and one jug of wine. Sounds like a beautiful Mishlach Manot. I don't know if I got that, I'd be very impressed. But, uh, and so he sends back, Shalach le, kiyam tabanu rabenu Mishlach Manot ish l'raehu umatanot levyonim. Rashi sends back, you fulfilled two things in one. You sent Mishlach Manot and Rabbi Yashaya happened to be poor. So he says, and you sent, you fulfilled Matanot levyonim too. And you learn from here a halacha that you can fulfill both mitzvot in one gift. This is the way it's written in standard printed editions of the Talmud. However, if you only read this version of the story, you missed the whole punchline. And, and here I'll show you a manuscript of this. This is a Yemenite manuscript, uh, although this appears in most manuscripts, actually. And if you could look carefully, you can read it in the original. Uh, it's beautifully written manuscript. It would be Yehuda Nesiyai. See it? Shadar led Rabbi Oshaya itma di iglatilta. So the Nasi sent to Rabbi Oshaya the limb of a third-born animal, and a jug of wine. So far, that's the same. He sent back, oh, you fulfilled gifts to the poor. <laughs> now, the point is Rabbi Oshaya was not poor, or not necessarily poor. Uh, he, what he's writing back is, you are the Nasi, right? Imagine someone who's, you know, multi-millionaire, and he sends you something that's nice, yeah, but for, for, for the person who's sending it, it should be so much more. So he's making fun of the gift in a joking way, obviously, right? And he said, thank you for the one, you know, one uh, uh, drumstick and only one jug of wine, you know, thank you for the gift for the poor. <laughs> and then after he got that message, the Biudan the Siyah said, okay, I'll make it up to you. So the Biudan sent the entire calf, third-born calf, and three uh, uh, gallons of wine. And then the Biudan sent back, he says, okay, now you fulfilled Mishloach Manot. And so this is a fun conversation between the two of them. Uh, to say, you know, not that he was complaining, right? But he's just saying that we can learn from here that when you're giving a gift, it should be in accordance with, uh, with your means and should be something that really shows how much you love the person. And so that's why he sent him more. And so that's a really fun story. And you missed the whole punchline otherwise. It's easy to see how this mistake happened in the printed editions and in some manuscripts. If you just skip from the words, um, and this line to the same exact words in the next line, then you just miss everything in the middle, and that is what happened. And uh, if you um, look at manuscripts and the way, and the Tamud Yudushami, by the way, and the Shanim, they all uh, contain the original story, uh, which is so much more fun. Okay, Rabbah, 
Another fun story about Mishlach Banot. Um, Rabbah uh, sent to the to the exilarch. Uh, the exilarch is the you're right, the head of the community in Bavel. <coughs> um, so that's a very important person, and he sent to him a sack full of dates and a cup full of roasted flour. In other words, pretty common, you know, dates and, and roasted flowers. It was a delicacy. It's, it tastes sweet. Amale Abaye, Abaye was the messenger between them. It's a student. I know what Marie, when he receives it, I know what he's going to say. He's going to quote a popular expression that says, even when a farmer becomes a king, the basket that he uses as a farmer, right, to feed the chickens still doesn't come off his neck, right? There's some people that remain very humble, and even when they achieve a high position, they still continue their humble ways, uh, which is, in a way, a nice thing. But the point here is making fun of Rabbah. That Rabbah used to be poor, and so he'd give, uh, you know, just a few dates. And then Rabbah became the Rosh Yeshiva. So now that he's the head of the Yeshiva, he should give bigger gifts, and so he knows Marie's going to make fun of this small gift as if, you know, he can't get out of his old mindset. Okay, so, So, um, Marie, the, the exilarch, he sends him back a sack of ginger and a cup of these long peppers. The messenger sending it back says, I know that, I know what, I know what, uh, uh, Rabbah is going to say when he receives this, Ana shadri li I sent him nice sweet things, dates and uh, um, a roasted wheat, and he sends me back uh, sharp things, right? These peppers and ginger, and ginger that don't taste uh, sweet, but taste sharp. And so they're kind of uh, giving each other witty, witty one-liners, uh, each uh, poking fun at the other's gift, of course, all in good friendship. And, uh, you know, this just kind of shows the, uh, the type of humor that the rabbis would use to jab at each other and make Purim fun. Okay. Again, the student of Rabbah, uh, when he would leave his master's house, Rabbah's house, he was totally full. Rabbah put out a great spread. However, but when he went to the house of Mare Barmor, who was the who was the exilarch, and he was even much more lavish, they would bring uh, sixty plates and sixty kinds of good uh, of cooked dishes. And I ate sixty portions from each of them. Okay, sixty obviously is an exaggerated number. It was probably more like 58 or 57. However, it was, right, 60 is uh, a round number because the Babylonians counted in base 60, which is why we also use 60 seconds and 60 minutes. So it's all based on the Babylonian system. So it's saying, like, a lot. At the end, the last dish was this pot roast. It was so good, and I ate so much of it that I wanted to eat the plate after it was done. And this is another folk saying that people say a poor man is hungry and doesn't know how hungry and doesn't know how hungry it is he is. In other words, I thought I was full until I got all this good food and I saw how really I was hungry. Or another way of uh, another statement, popular statement is there's always room for dessert. 
right? You think you're full, but when this good food comes out, you can always eat more. Okay, so again, another fun story. Some people say, no, these aren't just fun stories. Maybe they are uh, um, uh, deeper allegories of Abaye learning Torah from Rabbah, and he learned so much Torah, he thought he was full, he learned everything, and then he went to the other master's house who, who taught him even more. There happens to be 60 Masechtot of Mishnah, and uh, so same number meaning so much, and there was even more Torah, and I didn't realize how sweet Torah is and how much more I could learn. Uh, so that's a nice, a nice allegorical interpretation. Um, okay, Abaye bar Avin, Rabbi Chanina bar Avin, we just learned a story about uh, these rich rabbis who uh, served each other, but now here is very poor rabbis. Um, Abaye, the son of Avin, and Rabbi Hanina, the son of Avin, were very poor. They couldn't afford to have a seuda and also give mishloch manot. So you know what they did? They exchanged meals. Each one had a sandwich. You eat my sandwich, I'll eat your sandwich. And that way, we both give each other mishloch manot, and we have a seuda to eat. Which, by the way, also learned that the point of Mishloch Manot is to contribute to someone's seuda so that they have more food to eat during their meal. Okay, and now, famous line, A person must, saying in the language of a halacha, uh, get drunk on Purim to the extent that he doesn't know the difference between cursed is Haman, to blessed is Mordechai, gets mixed up, is like, who is the good one? Who was the bad one? Um, this is a poem that we say at the end of the Megillah. Reading the Megillah, which also appears in Tamud Yerushalmi. And so you have to be that drunk. That's pretty drunk not to know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. I mean, everybody knows the difference. Um, so according to this, sounds like you should get, should get drunk. Um, this could be relating to, you know, within the, within the Megillah, part of the theme is Nafohu, right? That the people on top, on the bottom, bottom on top, right? Everything gets mixed up. So part of that mixing up, right? Never quite clear who's, who's right and who's in the wrong until the end when you figure it out. Okay, so according to this, you should get very drunk. But we shouldn't end, this, end, end reading there because we follow this with a story and stories often, uh, sometimes they back up the law, but sometimes they give a slightly different reading of the law, sometimes even subversive as in this case. Rabban Rabbi Zera, they ate uh, Sudat Purim together. Ibasum, they got drunk. went and he did Shechita on Rabbi Zera. Cut off his head. Right, that's not such a nice thing to do to your guest. The next day, he woke up, he was sober, and he saw, oh no, what did I do to my friend? So luckily, he prayed for him and hey, Rabbi Zera came back to life. The next day, Rabbi invited him again. So come, come over and, uh, and eat with me. said, thanks, but no thanks. Can't rely on a miracle happening every year, right? And maybe this you're going to get drunk again and again kill me. And maybe a miracle won't happen. So I think I'll find another host. Okay, it's a, obviously a funny story, uh, an exaggerated story. Uh, but the point is, as a counter to the halacha, first you say you should get drunk, but look what happens when you get drunk, right? A lot of terrible things can happen also. And therefore, don't take that halacha uh, too literally, um, but rather, uh, as Rambam says, you drink a little more than you usually do, and you fall asleep, 
And then in your dreams, you won't have a clear idea of the difference between Rod Haman and Baruch Mordechai. And so you drink enough to enjoy the day, but not enough that you're going to put anybody or yourself in danger. Okay, that's a beautiful story. Amarava. If you eat the suda at night, you do not fulfill your obligation. Sometimes you go around and you see people going and partying and drinking and doing all kinds of things on Purim night, the night when you know, after the reading Megillah. There's no mitzvah to do that. There's no mitzvah during the night, only during the day. Pasuk says <clears> the days of of drinking and feasting. Rav Asher was once uh, sitting before Rav Kana and started getting late uh, during the day. It was uh, the, already Purim was was uh, ending, and the rabbis didn't come back to the Beit Midrash. It's like, where is everybody? Why aren't they coming? Maybe they're they're involved in the in Sudat Purim. Yeah, but why, why didn't they eat last night? What are they eating now, now during the day? And so they said, didn't you hear the halakha that Rava said? A generation before. So that put him, two generations before. So that put him, taught that if you have the suda at night, don't, you don't fulfill your obligation. So they have to eat, eat it during the day. And that's why they're eating it during the day and they continue, then they're drinking and, and, and partying a lot. That's why they're late to come to the Ben Midrash. Um, uh, and as I said, have I really said that? They said, yes, or one or the other. Anyway, so I never heard that before. I want to learn that now. And he repeated it 40 times until he knew it by heart, until he put it in his purse. Uh, this is a beautiful analogy of acquiring Torah, like acquiring money, right? You go and work for it, you acquire it, and you put it in the bank, uh, you register it, and then it's there in safekeeping forever, put it in the safe deposit box. And so he didn't know that, but now he learned it. And so now he knew it, and now he knew why they didn't come. All right, that was the long section. And now we're going to see two more Mishnayot with a shorter discussion each. Mishnah says, "En ben yom tov leshabbat ela ochel nefesh bilbad." The Mishnah before said, "En ben." There's no difference between adar aleph and adar bet. Since we mentioned one phrase that starts with no difference between en ben, the next Mishnayot are going to give a whole series of other halachot that have nothing to do with Purim. We also start with the same phrase. So here we say, "There's no difference between yom tov and Shabbat, except for uh, preparing food." In other words, all 39 melachot apply equally to Shabbat and Yom Tov, right? You can't, um, uh, 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 you can't, uh, you know, whatever you can't do on one, you can't do on the other, except if it's for preparation of food that is allowed on Yom Tov and not allowed on Shabbat. And that actually does have an effect on multiple halachot, like using fire and um, uh, uh, baking, carrying Right, things like that, doing shechita, all those which are involved in the prepare, preparation of food are permitted on Yom Tov. Okay, Gemara. Okay, that's regarding preparing food is allowed, but regarding preparation for preparation of food, for example, sharpening a knife. That's something you could have done before. That's, you're not actually preparing the food when you're sharpening the knife. You're just preparing to do the, do, do the cooking. So those things... 
everyone uh, are the same on Shabbat and Yom Tov, meaning they're equally prohibited. Okay, so according to the Mishnah, since it doesn't, since it only says preparing food, but not the machshire, not the pre-preparations, uh, are a difference between them. That means they're the same. And so Mishnah thinks that you cannot do the pre-preparation on Yom Tov. Therefore, Matnitin de la Kribiuda de Tanya and Ben Yom Tov le Shabbat el Ochel Nefesh, the Biuda Matir af Machshire Ochel Nefesh. And we can see this clearly in the Braita that our Mishnah does not follow the opinion of the Biuda because the Braita says there's no difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov except for cooking. But the preparations for cooking, uh, the Biuda says, uh, 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 but, but would be not allowed. But the Buddha says he permits even the preparations for cooking. So you see that the Buddha does not agree with the Tanakama here. According to Tanakama, you're not allowed to do the preparations for cooking, not on Yom Tov and not on Shabbat. According to Buddha, you can even sharpen the knife to the preparations for cooking on Yom Tov. Good. My de Tanakama. Now we understand the roots of this machloket. What is the reason for Tanakama who is stringent? And does not allow the preparations. Amar Kera, who the pasuk is right. This is a, a holiday, and the, and the pasuk says, only something that is for food for everyone. That is something that you are allowed to do on Yom Tov. So the word "who" is a limiting word. That is allowed, meaning only cooking, and not the preparations for cooking. There you go. But the Biuda, the Biuda, what's his proof? He says, Amad Lachem, Lachem, Lechol Sorchachem. says, Hu, Hu, Levado, Yaseh Lachem. Lachem is an inclusive word, means anything, anything that you need, if it helps you, you're allowed to do it on Yom Tov, even a pre preparation. Okay, now Tanakama, what is he going to do with that word? Let's say Lachem, which is an inclusive word. He says, No, I, I'm going to use it for a different law. When he says you're allowed to cook on Yom Tov, that only means you're allowed to cook for a fellow Jew. And the only reason is that of that is because he is also celebrating the holiday. So you can only violate the holiday for extra celebration of the holiday. And that would exclude non-Jews, because they don't celebrate the, the Jewish holidays, and dogs don't celebrate anything, and so therefore you cannot prepare food for anyone who does not celebrate the holiday. And um, this is a important halakha to know, because you are allowed to, uh, because it would be a problem to invite over a non-Jew to a holiday meal, uh, because then if you're cooking uh, cooking on the holiday, there'll you know, be a problem cooking for them. You are allowed to invite a non-Jew for Shabbat, because on Shabbat, you're not cooking for anyone. And the, so if you're going to invite someone, invite them on Shabbat. Okay. Now, what is he going to do with that? Who, uh, which is a limiting word, says, sounds like that, only that, only the cooking, but not the preparation. Um, well, he will answer. And he'll answer. It says two words. Who and lachem. One is a, was a, is a limiting word. One is an open word. And so it says both to tell me that. Um, if it's a preparation that I could have done before Yom Tov, then I can't do it on Yom Tov. But if it's something that I couldn't have done beforehand, then I'm allowed to do it um, on Yom Tov itself. So I shouldn't uh, take away from the joy of the holiday by doing things I could have done before. But if I couldn't have done it before and it wouldn't, taste, it wouldn't have tasted as good, then I'm allowed to do it on Yom Tov itself. So there is some limitation, even according to the B. Yehuda.
All right, and now uh, the last Mishnah for today. And Ben Shabbat Liom Hakipurim Ela Sheze Zedono Bide Adam Beze Zedono Bekaret. There's no difference between Shabbat and Yom, and Yom Kippur except that uh, regarding their punishments. Um, uh, this one, uh, if you do it on purpose, if you violate Shabbat on purpose, then the punishment is is at the hands of a court of man, meaning will be stoning in a human court. Whereas if someone violates Yom Kippur on purpose, then the punishment is karet, which is uh, at the hands of God. Um, and that's less severe, even though it's hands of God, it's less severe than in the hands of man. Okay, obviously there are many differences between Shabbat and Yom Kippur, for example, eating and things like that. But we're talking about the punishment for violating a melacha on one or the other, which is really interesting. People usually think that Yom Kippur is the holiest, most special day of the year, and it is the holiest in some sense. But if one had to violate either Yom Kippur or Shabbat, uh, it's worse to violate Shabbat than Yom Kippur. So really, Shabbat is, in that sense, the holiest day of the year. Okay, so that is the that is the difference between them regarding the type of punishment. So now we say, Okay, so since it only, only says this is the only difference between them, that would mean regarding payment of monetary damages, they are equal. What are we talking about? So there's a rule. If you do something, one action, and then that same action you violate, you have to you owe someone money and you incur the death penalty. For example, if I steal someone's <clears throat> apple off their apple tree on Shabbat. So now I violated two things. I plucked an apple off a tree, and that is violating Shabbat. At the same time, I'm also stealing, and that means I owe the person an apple. So the law is that if I do one action that is punishable for two things, I only get one punishment, the most severe of them, which means I would only get the death penalty which is very bad, but at least I won't have to pay the guy the apples back. Okay, so that's the law regarding <coughs> Shabbat for sure. And this is saying that is true for Yom Kippur also. If I would do something that would be Chayaf Karet, uh, for say, the same thing on uh, stealing an apple on, on Yom Kippur, uh, then I would also only get Karet and not have to pay. Uh, so that's what it seems. That would be the conclusion. And therefore, who is the author of, of our Mishnah? Who actually says that explicitly? He says explicitly that Yom Kippur is the same as Shabbat regarding payment of monetary damages. You have to pay with your life, and therefore you don't have to pay money. So too, Yom Kippur, your, your life is chayav, even though it's only karet, not bide adam, still nevertheless considered a, uh, a, a, a death penalty. Therefore, does not have to pay. Okay, so that's one comparison. Now, the last thing is we're gonna uh, we're gonna learn something else from our Mishnah regarding something else that's a bit technical. Tenan hatam. We learn a Mishnah Masachet Makot. Kol chayave kiritot shelaku nifteru mide kiritatan shenemar v'nikla achicha le'anecha kevan shelaka harehu keachicha dibre Rabbi Chananya ben Gamliel. Okay, this Mishnah says that anyone who is liable to karet if they were, they, uh, a betin came and gave them lashes, then they, the karet is removed. And we know that because Pasuk says, someone who gets lashes, v'nikla, he's called a brother in your eyes. Once someone gets lashes, then he's your full brother, and he's exempt from that punishment of karet that he would have gotten, according to the Bichananya, 
Ben Gamliel. I happen to know some people who um, every so often will give each other lashes, light lashes, uh, so that they symbolically can get lashes and therefore remove any possible karet that they might have gotten. Okay, not recommending that, right? But that's just an example of this, that lashes can substitute for karet. That's That's a minority opinion. The rest of the sages disagree. And they said, no, you can't do that. Someone gets, deserves karet, they're going to get karet. And you can't substitute lashes for karet. Okay, now that we know that, we're going to bring in our Mishnah to try to prove that Rabbi Yochanan is right, uh, that there are the sages disagree. We know this already, we, think, we told Rabbi Yochanan. And we learned in our Mishnah, there's no difference between Yom Kippur and Shabbat, except that one is stoning, which is in the hands of man. Another one is karet, which is in the hands of heaven. Now, if you think that, like Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Hanina, Ben Gamliel here, if you think that you can substitute karet with lashes, then lashes is bideh adam. And in that case, both Yom Kippur and Shabbat would be a punishment that's in the hands of mankind. And therefore, there would be no difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov. It would be a difference in the type of punishment, but you wouldn't say that Yom Kippur is in the hands of heaven because after all, that karet can be substituted with lashes. And therefore, you see, our Mishnah does not follow Rabbi Hananya, and the Fa must follow the other sages. And that's how we know other sages disagree. Okay, so this seems to be a good proof. We're going to see a reason why not, however, Madam Nachman, not necessarily Hamaner Rabbi Yitzchaki. Maybe our Mishnah actually could be the opinion of Rabbi Yitzchak, who takes a middle position. He says that you cannot substitute uh, lashes for, uh, for karet. However, he says that only regarding incest. Most of the laws of incest, where the, the punishment is karet. And so he's saying in that area, uh, one cannot make a substitute. So if you look at the in Vayikra, when it gives a list of all the uh, the the giloy uh, adayot, uh, it says that they, in general they're all karet. But then regarding if someone is uh, sleeps with his sister, it says regarding specifically that that uh, that one's karet. So the question is why specify the same punishment regarding sister, if you already said it in general. And so this is to come and emphasize and say it has to be karet and you cannot substitute for malkut. And since we see that in one of the examples regarding sister, we learn that that's true for the whole group there. That means in all the laws of incest, one cannot uh, substitute one for the other. And so there you go. We have um, Rabbi Yitzhak who says in other cases, you cannot substitute uh, in this case, you cannot substitute, but there may be other cases where there could be a possibility that you could substitute. And therefore, the Mishnah may be Rabbi Yitzchak's opinion that we see here, and not necessarily that there's a whole other group of rabbis that disagrees with Rabbi Hananya. And so uh, this is saying that the, our Mishnah is not, necess not necessarily a proof for the statement of Rabbi Yochanan above.
And finally, uh, Rav Asher says, I can reconcile everything all and say Amishnah, in fact, is uh, fine with uh, Rabbi Hananya. And again, there's no proof that uh, of, for Rabbi Yochanan that the colleagues disagree with him. He says as follows, Rav Asher Amar, Afilu temar banan, ze ikar zedono adam, ze ikar zedono behikaret. When our Mishnah is saying that there's no difference between Shabbat and Yom Kippur, except that Shabbat is Bidei Adam, what we mean by that is that the main punishment is Bidei Adam, right? The, the primary punishment for someone who violates Shabbat, of course, on purpose with witnesses and with, uh, uh, with warning, would be Bidei Adam by stoning. And when we said that Yom Kippur is Karet, we just mean that the primary punishment for intentionally violating Yom Kippur would be Karet even though technically you could substitute with lashes if you needed to. But, but the, the Mishnah is not, not dis, disregarding that. It's just saying that primarily you would get a karet. And therefore, our Mishnah is, in fact, uh, uh, compatible with Rabbi Hananya ben Gamliel, who said that you can substitute. And our Mishnah may very well agree with that. So there's no proof from our, our Mishnah that Rabbi Yochanan has to be, uh, uh, that Rabbi Yochanan is correct. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.